a lot of familiar faces. Not just faces, I mean, whole person, bodies and everything else, minds. And there's some new people. Everyone here uh, has satisfied the prerequisite of some practice, although there are some people who've had retreat experience but not here. And uh, some of what Corrado and I have to say this evening will be quite familiar to many, if not most of you. Although every time we hear it, uh, it's a challenge to take it in more deeply. And of course, most of all, to live it. A retreat is an, an opportunity for, in a sense, a heightened spiritual ripening. Whatever your practice is like, and I could assume, can assume, that everyone here has a practice. Um, when you come together, when all of us come together and pool our resources, uh, have a building set up for this purpose and a staff that is also growing in the same direction, whereas the conditions are as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, arranged to maximize our ripening, our spiritual ripening, our flowering as people. So we do everything we can to create conditions that contribute to calmness and clarity and peace. And of course, most of all, clear seeing and understanding that grows out of such calmness and peace. Learning. Learning how to be a human being in a way that is more beneficial for us and for everyone else. Put another way, the a retreat is a, a rather intense form of re-education. In a certain way, it's brainwashing. But to me, uh, brainwashing is a beautiful term. I don't mean it as it has been used, which I think is a mistaken use. Brainwashing sounds quite beautiful to me. Uh, what I think is meant is when it's brain conditioning, when people are twisting the mind in a certain direction. Uh, here, each one of us has the opportunity and supporting conditions to let go, to clean out so many aspects of consciousness that have been a burden, that are a burden, that are not necessary, that are uh, a hindrance to our flowering as people. And so there's a structure. And this structure includes a certain minimal kind of agreement that we all make, and if we don't make it, uh, the structure, which is rather fragile, actually, uh, can fall apart or become torn, tattered around the edges, and um, that affects all of us in a negative way. Of course, first and foremost is the silence. I don't mean first and foremost, but most obvious. It's fragile, and so it's necessary that all of us play our part in maintaining and protecting the silence and speaking only when it's really essential. On our job, interviews, or if an emergency comes up, discussion groups. The schedule is here. And the schedule can be a wonderful teacher. 
uh, if you use it that way. Using it that way means that you sit, and sometimes you don't want to sit, because the schedule is unrelenting, it's impersonal, it's just up there on the bulletin board, and someone rings a bell. But our emotional life doesn't necessarily coincide with what's on the bulletin board. And it's not that this is, uh, of, is the only way to do things, but it's one way that's been found very useful. So if you surrender to the schedule, that means sometimes you practice, and you come into the hall when that's the last thing you want to do. Literally, it really is the last thing you want. And you examine that. You take a look at how much you don't want to be in the hall. Or perhaps you have a, a yogi job that's not to your liking. That's part of it. We're all in this together. So that everything that happens here, at least potentially, is designed to help us learn. Learn how to see into that which needs to be seen into and let go of. minimal set of agreements that is really essential for us to make are the precepts, the five precepts, not to kill. In the context of this retreat and at this time of the year that I don't think we're too much danger of killing each other, except mentally, but bugs and other creatures and critters is to try to honor that precept. Try to understand why it's there in the first place. Since we may be a bug for someone else. We don't like it. So, we look at that one. That may not be major in our practice here. The center is kept clean and we do our best to minimize problems having to do with uh, animals or mosquitoes and flies and so forth. And stealing. You might think, well, that's not too relevant. What's there to steal? You'd be surprised if it says one cookie first time around. Take one cookie. Don't take two cookies. That's stealing. That might mean that someone else gets no cookie. Okay, in the big scheme of things with enlightenment hovering over us, that's rather trivial. It's just a cookie, for God's sakes. It's not about that. It's about your mind. And that's another part of the, the, where the surrender comes in, to just uh, so many of us are so individualistic. We have so many different preferences and tastes, dietary and clothing, and to be, have no sense or scent, unscented or scented uh, it's endless. One percent cottage milk fat cottage cheese, that's not enough. I want zero. We can't. It's impossible to please everyone. And when you come to a retreat of this sort, it's an automatic kind of renunciation. We leave a lot of comfort back home, waiting in line for showers. And you all know what's in store for you. The new people may not. That's the kind of renunciation. This isn't home. It isn't set up for your individual expression and creativity. Now, you can take that as uh, 
some kind of uh, violence against you, or you can, again, use that for learning and seeing what it brings up for you as the retreat unfolds. Trying to just humbly practice along, all of us practicing together. To not misuse sexual energy. Well, you might think that that is also pretty safe on a retreat, but that's not true. I wouldn't say it it prevails, but it happens. Uh, In a more subtle way, uh, not literally a sexual exchange between people. But if you've come as a couple, sometimes good friends come, or partners, or husbands and wives, um, it's really good to understand that this retreat is for you as an individual. This is just from years of doing this. It's, I don't know where you're seated, but it's a good idea to not be seated right next to each other. We've just seen that. We've learned that. Uh, there'll be so many times where you want to share the ups or the downs of the retreat with your partner, husband, your wife, your pal. Don't. Don't share it. Watch the mind. See where that, that's coming from, the need to have someone feel sorry for you if you're hating it here, or share in your glory as you break through with some wonderful samadhi. And I think you find it much more valuable to look at the mind that needs to talk to who you came with and to do the talking. Retreat goes by, as you know, quite rapidly. Before you know it, we'll all be going home and um, the reunion will be all that much sweeter. Again, lying, misuse of speech, harsh speech, uh, speech that's divisive, not true. On a retreat, uh, as you see, on a retreat we're pretty much protected from ourselves. It's, uh, we're protected from mischief that we might get into. Uh, in the context of the retreat, it, it means maintain silence. But there's a more subtle meaning that can be extended to the interview situation. It's not that people necessarily consciously lie when you come into the interview, but sometimes uh, we color things a little bit. Uh, For what? To protect what the teacher will think of us, or what we think we think of us. Um, This is not a place for that. You're here for yourself to learn. And so if you can, be as concrete, as honest, as direct, as open as you know how to be about your practice, about what's actually happening to you here, then we can all uh, benefit from that. And of course, no intoxicants, no drugs, alcohol, and so forth, for obvious reasons. The Buddha is someone who's awake. Awakening is what the whole journey is about, clear mind. Vipassana means clear seeing. Let's do those things that contribute to clear seeing. I would add, although this isn't always uh, included in the traditional list, even such matters as diet. Uh, mindful, mindfulness is often not fully used. 
Sometimes we use it for just officially Buddhist kinds of observations, seeing the impermanent nature of all formations. Wonderful, profound, very, very important, as you know. But it can be used in so many other ways that can help us, and that sometimes we don't make as full use as we might. For example, the amount of food that you take and the kind of food that you take influences the, the kind of wakefulness that you'll have. Whether you'll feel heavy, loaded down, dull, or whether there'll be a lightness and a, a bright quality to the mind. Begin to learn what your food needs are from your own experience. To do that, mindfulness is uh, just perfect. That's what it knows how to do. Just pay attention and refine your ability to eat in such a way as to enhance the mind's clarity rather than to handicap it in some way. As you know, these five precepts are often taken formally in a ceremony and are not really meant as so much as commandments from up on high, but finally they are wisdom itself. That is, when we live in ways that are consistent, that are aligned with these precepts, uh, our life and the lives of the people in our life is, is also enhanced. And so finally, uh, the precepts is just a formalization of, of what wisdom is. As, as we learn how to live, uh, we see that the precepts is just a formal statement of wisdom in action. How can any society flourish if people are lying, stealing, and so forth? Um, we also have ref take refuge, and this one is a little bit more complex. Uh, personally, I don't see much benefit in taking refuge unless it really means something to you, to mechanically uh, repeat, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha, uh, may calm the mind down a little bit and may give you a feeling of belonging. But uh, finally, uh, what that means to you is very much an individual matter. Somebody who's been practicing for many years and has a very clear understanding that these teachings didn't drop from the sky, that uh, they have existed for a long time and have been kept alive and protected by generations of people just like ourselves because they're so precious. People have given their entire life to protect these teachings, and now we have them. Historically, we have one person, the Buddha. Perhaps if you've studied and read and practiced, from time to time you're grateful that such a human being existed and devoted his life in, in quite the way that he did, because we're the beneficiaries of it. But even closer at hand, and perhaps more relevant than the historical Buddha, is the Buddha nature that the Buddha was talking about, saying we all are Buddhas. It's the quality of mind. Taking refuge in that aspect that all of us have, that yearning to be free, to live wisely and with kindness and compassion. That's already in our mind, that capacity. It, we have it. Perhaps the Buddha perfected it. But we have it too, and practice is a matter of refinement. 
endless refinement, development, refinement, subtleties of it all. And the Dharma, in one sense, are the teachings that have been kept alive on palm leaves, been kept alive through oral transmission from teacher to student, been kept alive in books and now tapes and videos and the internet and who knows what's next. It's been kept alive and these are, in one sense, verbal teachings that point to something very, very important that the Buddha was talking about. And having it recorded this way is very, very useful. Having people who understand these teachings share them with us as so many of us have had done by, with our teachers. But then, of course, again, if we poke a little deeper, it's not so much the words in books, but the, the lawfulness that those words point at that perhaps we begin to see in our own experience are true and helpful. That understanding this lawfulness really helps us live. And that finally, wisdom in action is living in harmony with a lawfulness that is beyond our particular individual preference. Of course, on a retreat, we're going into that, the thorough experience of our experience. And the Sangha, taking refuge in the Sangha, that's us. Sometimes it's used to mean the monks. Sometimes it's used to mean all those who've tasted some degree of opening, some degree of awakening. And sometimes it's used for all those who are sincerely on the path, like ourselves. includes monks and people who've tasted some awakening, lay people, nuns, all of us, the whole gang. And as you know, on a retreat, it can give you tremendous strength to have other people doing what you're doing. And especially during those times when you are discouraged or don't feel like doing it, and you look up and here we all are, sitting there, our bodies may hurt too, but we're still here. Maybe our hearts hurt, but we're still here. And that helps us. We, we practice. And one aspect is that kind of harmonious, even in silence, cooperative spirit. You can feel the uh, people really wishing each other well, but not always. It's also important to understand that when you have a group of people we're thrown together like this. Perhaps it will get hot. We have to wait online for this, that, and the other. Perhaps people walk away that you don't like, or they dress inappropriately, or they just don't look right. Something about them. Take too long in the bathroom. The Sangha isn't just love and light. We get on each other's nerves, and that's valuable. But you have to have the attitude to begin with to know that that's valuable. So that finally, this attitude, I would say, is fundamental to um, having a fulfilling retreat. That is to view the entire nine days that we're here together as an opportunity to learn. It's just, it's just a school. You have a sitting that goes your way. You have a sitting that 
Not only can't you find the breath, you don't, can't even find your nostrils. Just as valuable. Restlessness is not less valuable than those nice humming sounds that come when we're peaceful. But only if we understand uh, that a new way of relating to them. We relate to everything as this is what's happening to us. Rather than getting all caught up in this is what I want to happen and if I don't get it I don't like being here and I don't like anything about this place. We can't help the mind feeling that and thinking that. We were all four years old once and there's still a four-year-old in us. But part of this ripening and spiritual maturity that can come about on a retreat has to do with the intensity. It's like a pressure cooker in certain ways. I like a term that Corrado uses. He has a book in Italian, which I think is translated as the quiet passion. That's what Vipassana, it's a name for Vipassana practice, insight meditation. I think it really is, uh, I'm not just saying it because he's a good friend and he's sitting right next to me. I think it's one of the best uh, ways of talking about what we do. Uh, you know, if someone from the outside took a peek at what we're doing, and maybe a video of the whole retreat, uh, they could certainly see the outer quiet, but where's the passion? It takes tremendous passion to do this practice. It's subtle. It's not with uh, screaming and jumping up, up and down. It's a, a quiet, refined kind of ongoing commitment to be in this moment, to be willing to expose ourselves, naked awareness to this moment. And sometimes, as we know, the moment isn't the kind of moment we want to be there. Our practice is learning how to be there anyway. So no matter what turns up, a bad situation is a good situation because it's our situation and we're learning how to free ourselves from bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. So I hope that we all have a harmonious retreat together and that we make good use of these days where so much uh, responsibility has been relieved. We don't have to do, we have, our main responsibility is to uh, get to know ourselves better and to do it with a, a group of other people who are similarly motivated. We're fortunate to have all these conditions come together. Uh, Corrado has a few words and then we'll uh, there'll be a brief introduction to the meditation instructions, and then we'll do some sitting. I, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking that uh, Larry and I have been teaching here since uh, 1985, and... Um, for the first time last year, I took a sabbatical, and uh, this year I'm back, and uh, I'm very happy to be back. Uh, meanwhile, in the prime of youth, I became a father for the first time, and uh, so now this is relevant in terms of meditation, because now I have a a new distraction, uh, a strong one, 
Every time I sit, my son pops in and uh, keeps popping in relentlessly. More when I am away, of course. It can become kind of haunting. Um, So this happened about eight months ago. And the last eight months have been uh, at the same time extremely sweet and extremely challenging. I had to put all my dharma practice into, into action. And also, I think I um, opened up a little bit more in between um, sleep deprivation and, uh, you know. <laughs> and I happened to... Um, in between, you know, ups and downs and uh, expansion and contraction, I I happen to feel a number of times a sense of gratitude for this tradition. Of course, uh, all great spiritual tradition um, are great, but I was brought up in this tradition, so my gratitude uh, would go specifically to, to this tradition. I don't mean in any sense uh, identification with this tradition or, you know, preaching, uh, things like that. Just, just a, a quiet gratitude for, these, uh, uh, for this set of teachings uh, which uh, were handed down over the centuries. And over the centuries, they were experimented with, deepened, refined more and more. And uh, more witnesses, uh, and more witnesses as the time would go by, uh, you know, for these teachings. I think it takes some time for a practitioner to. Um, to begin savoring, you know, the, the, the value of, the, of a tradition. In other words, at one point, tradition stops being an idea or a concept, maybe a concept we are fascinated with, and it becomes something organic, and, uh, and we start feeling a quiet gratitude for this something which has been handed down and which we were fortunate enough to, to meet and, uh, and to begin to work with. Um, in other words, at one point, one start feeling supported by the tradition. So at that point, it's not an idea anymore. 
Uh, it's interesting that the meaning of the word dharma is hold, holding, to hold, to support, and is etymologically uh, linked with the word firm. So being supported, being held by the tradition, by the dharma. You know, by a dint of patient practice, sooner or later one starts uh, having this experience. I'm talking about an experience, and uh, I'm not talking about uh, uh, thinking. Now, feeling supported, sometimes we, we, uh, we feel it uh, very acutely, and at other times we don't, uh, you know, impermanence everywhere. everywhere. But uh, uh, feeling supported is essential to develop trust. And in the practice, in the inner work, in, in our Dharma practice, trust is essential. It's essential in every field and everywhere. But this work, it's simple and difficult, <laughs> and, and trust is essential. It is trust which enables us gradually to relax into awareness. Without trust, we cannot relax into awareness. It's just, it's just like a law, you know. We, we are kind of contracted, uh, defended, so we cannot literally relax into awareness. Uh, we cannot relax into concentration. We can uh, uh, make many uh, desperate efforts at being concentrated, but uh, I'm not sure that's right effort. Um, and it takes trust to learn, in order for us to learn to let go the causes of suffering. You know, letting go is something which takes a lot of training, a lot of learning. And it is a kind of learning which has to be embedded in trust. It doesn't work otherwise. Um, we can um, fool ourselves, we can delude ourselves. So the, the, the understanding, the learning of letting go the causes of suffering. Uh, you know, letting go is at the same time intelligence and action. And it takes, as many of you know, uh, a lot of patience you know, to, to, to uh, enter into this kind of learning the art of letting go the causes of suffering. Sometimes in spiritual uh, language, in spiritual jargon, you know, letting go is a, a bit vague. Uh, letting go what? Letting go the causes of suffering. You know, this is, again, it's the precision of the tradition. The precision and, uh, you know, the, 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 the um, all the work which has been done, letting go the causes of suffering. 
know, this is, again, it's the precision of the tradition. The precision and, uh, you know, the, 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 um, all the work which has been done on this crucial theme. And we owe, we owe it to the tradition. Tradition is not vague. Tradition is precise. Um, this retreat is for uh, non-beginners and uh, for non-beginners, um, letting go, uh, acceptance, um, on the one hand, are uh, something which has been already um, um, experienced to some extent. But on the other hand, they can become um, tricky. In other words, letting go, um, no, let's say, non letting go can, be, can masquerade as letting go, uh, non acceptance can masquerade as acceptance. I personally am very interested in something I would call, I would like to call hidden non-acceptance. Like, for instance, someone says something unpleasant to us and we suffer afterwards, during, afterwards. Um, we think that we are suffering because of those unkind words, period. And we think that, yeah, we've accepted it. And yet it hurts, period. But maybe we don't see that actually we are not accepting the fact that we have been hurt by those words. That, in other words, we think that we shouldn't be perturbed, we shouldn't be uh, uh, upset because of those words. So this is non-acceptance, but it's hidden. It's uh, <laughs> a refinement of our ego. Now, a retreat, in my experience, is a, a, an excellent opportunity to deepen the uh, understanding of this crucial theme of letting go, acceptance, letting go, with regard to the causes of suffering. Like in this small example, we keep suffering because of non-accepting the fact that, yes, being insulted hurts. No, I shouldn't have this. That's ego, that's non-acceptance. But easily, we don't see it unless we get a training, a training which is offered by a tradition, which has been experimented, confirmed through a tradition. So this is implied when we take refuge uh, in the Dharma. when we offer ourselves the gift of taking refuge in the Dharma. As Larry was saying, you know, we, we don't do it mechanically. And if we uh, feel that we 
do it mechanically with better weight. Sitting a retreat and teaching a retreat are very uh, close dimensions. Uh, many teachers, um, when begin teaching, see a, 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 a see tend tend to see a wide gap between uh, personal practice and teaching practice. But then, as the years go by, uh, this distinction uh, start thinning out. So I think we will all be uh, learning a little bit more through the practice about uh, letting go the causes of suffering, about freeing ourselves from suffering. So uh, best wishes to us all. And I think um, Larry would like to um, give um, some basic instructions. Before we do that, uh, why don't you all take a stretch, a break, stand up. You've been sitting for a while now. Bring the body into as upright and comfortable a position as possible so that the head, the neck, the back are in a straight line. It's a good habit to get into to relax the body, even if it just takes a few moments. In this our first sitting, take a few moments to move down from the head, move your mindfulness on a journey throughout the body, just sweep through the body, relaxing the, the head area, the face. Sometimes the eyes are very tight with determination. The jaw, maybe it's poised for action. Help it relax by simply noticing it as it is. Move into the torso as well.
Just directing mindfulness throughout the front and the back of the body, the feeling the entire torso can relax it. Begin to include the shoulders and the arms and the hands. The body can learn to sit in a relaxed, upright, more and more comfortable way that really helps the mind do the same thing. Check to see if there's tension in the legs and the feet. And for just a few moments, please have a sense of the the body as a whole, throw all the pieces together, just this sense of the whole body sitting. Upright and relaxed. There's a stability, a firmness, but nothing forced. In beginning our retreat, sometimes it's rather useful to check the mind as well, to see if you've come with some baggage, something, some project that you're going to establish, some decision that you definitely will make by the end of this retreat as to whether to take the job or give the job back or break up or get married or whatever, or a particular trait that you're determined to root out by the end of the nine days. Let it all go. It's best to start with as much innocence as possible. Allow the retreat to present itself. Allow your life to unfold. And the less we have of an agenda in terms of these concrete projects that we're going to use Vipassana on, instead just relax into the breathing now, assuming you all know where you find the breath overall to be most vivid. Granted that from sitting to sitting, sometimes that place may not be the most vivid, but overall, perhaps it's at the nose or the abdomen. Some of you have been doing lots of sitting, perhaps it's just a a sense of the whole body breathing. In these first few days, we're going to encourage each other to 
take up the breathing in a singular way. It's going to be featured. We're going to use it as pretty much an exclusive object of attention. And let's begin to do that now. Just notice, and that's something that we all share, each and every one of us in this meditation hall, we're all breathing, which is to say we're all alive. When you contemplate the breath even without words, that's what you're noticing. It's not a mechanical exercise or drill. Come to rest in the breathing, wherever it is for you. Taking it one breath at a time. permitting the breathing to unfold naturally. We're not trying to shape the breath according to some pattern, perhaps ideal breathing, but rather let the breath follow its own nature, assume its own rhythm or even lack of rhythm, let it alone. Just let it happen. And meet it with interest. Experiencing each in-breath, each out-breath. In a group, composed as our group is, of many people who've had a, a lot of experience and everyone a fair amount of experience of perhaps breath awareness, we have to be alert to see if we've become habituated to it. We've followed the breath in, out, in, out so many hundreds, thousands of times. Has it lost its freshness for you? Come to the breath as if for the first time. You're just hearing these instructions as a brand new practice in your life.
You all understood the instructions? They're rather simple. You know exactly what to do. And yet in spite of this, the mind seems to have a mind of its own and prefers to be elsewhere. It doesn't want to be with breathing. We'd much rather be with a conversation that went on earlier today at work. Or perhaps if you're new and it's the first retreat here for you, there's a bit of anxiety. Will I be able to do it? I don't know. Not sure I like this place. They're so serious. And you find yourself not with the breath. Come back, ease back, coming back without blame. Often, whether we like it or not, the mind takes its slipping off the breath as a mistake or weakness of concentration. And then there's a waking up to that. We see that we're not with the breath. That's awareness of unawareness. That's valuable practice. Why not see it that way? Oh, look, I notice that I'm not aware. Instead of using it to diminish yourself, why not just come back without evaluation, judgment, norms that we've made up as to how the mind is supposed to be. So we come back without turning the departure from the breath into a problem. We come back as many times as we slip away. Period. That's it. And then, as you know, little by little, the mind settles down. 